This podcast is brought to you by House of Macadamias. I love macadamia nuts. They are incredibly good for you. They're the healthiest nut on a pound for pound basis, but they've always been hard to find and frankly, very expensive. House of Macadamias changes all that by going directly to farmers in South Africa to take the best nuts directly from each harvest. They turn them into incredible products, chocolate dip macadamias, protein bars, you name it. They taste incredible. I live off these products on a day-to-day basis. I'm a huge fan. Go to houseofmacadamias.com backslash Noah, use the code NOAH20 and you won't be disappointed. Welcome to the Uncharted podcast. Uncharted is a community of some of the world's best entrepreneurs, founders, investors, creatives, and beyond. At our dinners and at our annual summit in New York, we have dialogues with people who are truly at the top of their game across every industry. This podcast is designed really to offer the world and the audience a peek into the magical conversations that happen behind closed doors at our events, and more importantly, a peek into the brains of people who are truly at the top of their game. My goal with every guest is that if you know them well, you'll hear them talk about something or say something they've really never said before, and if you've never heard of them, you'll know exactly what makes them such a badass by the time the episode is over. Welcome to Uncharted. We're glad you're here. Tracy, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure and an honor to meet ever. I think we connected through Katie Loeb and you obviously helped us uh, pull together some of the programming for this year's Uncharted Summit, which we're super grateful for. And ever since the first meeting that we only met on Zoom, I was fascinated by your story and what you've been able to accomplish. And so it's it's an honor and a pleasure to have you on the Uncharted pod. So thank you so much for making some time for us. I really appreciate it. hundred percent. Anything for you and for the Lopes. I love it. So you you have had a, a storied career. You um, In health and wellness, you've done hundreds of millions of dollars of sales. You run your own paid community, which is doing seven figures of revenue. You've accomplished more. Um, in a career that is very much still in its prime than I think many, many hope to. And you're obviously a huge champion and shepherd for a lot of aspiring women. So there's a lot I'd love to dive into. I want to start with something um, that I actually heard you speak about on another podcast when I was prepping. You mentioned that you were a born entrepreneur and that you were born into a family where I don't want to say that wasn't accepted, but it wasn't the expectation and I think I'd like to assume that a lot of our audience who's listening, whether they're founders or investors, they'll resonate with this notion of being as cliche as it sounds, outside the box thinker, square peg and round hole, and specifically women, obviously. It's there, there's there's a whole bunch to unpack there. Can you just walk us through, walk the audience through that early realization, how you dealt with that, how you realized that the early lemonade stand stories, if you will, um, and how that all came to be? Yeah, for sure. I think. You know, for those who are listening, who are entrepreneurs, there's this drive uh, for, I would say, a a hybrid between creativity and creative expression. And for us, our KPI is income or revenue, right? So by virtue (laughs) of those those two things, I think from an early age, this idea of I have this ability to create something that's uniquely coming from my brain into the world, whether that be having some outdoor play or ticket sales for some kind of activity in the neighborhood to making pies to whatever it may be. There is this creative expression that takes place of this vision of something that's not yet been satisfied. And then this idea of getting compensated for that is incredibly rewarding. Mm. And I think a lot of folks who I've talked to who have been successful entrepreneurs have also been waiters, waitresses, bartenders, event planners, Mm. folks get to walk into an event or into a a, a restaurant and, and perform and transact and walk out with cash. And from an early age, I thought that was so cool. The yeah. idea that you could think of something and then someone's going to actually pay you for it. It does feel like a lot of um, entrepreneurs, the, the service industry jobs, specifically waiting tables or being a bartender, they can map pretty darn well to a lot of those skills of being an entrepreneur, even just like hustling for tips, which I imagine of like, how do you game the system to sell the higher ticket items to get a customer to put a higher, like all that stuff is very entrepreneurial. And if you can be a really good waiter, like, there's an it factor there, you know? Sure. 
And, and even, even with those relationships that you build and cultivate with your core customers and they give you 50 bucks for a great table, or they tip you a hundred bucks because they really like you. There's this understanding that there's a deep connection to a customer. And when you can satisfy something they need, they're willing to compensate you. That was really exciting. As for my parents, both of them were PhDs. One was a nuclear physicist. My mom was a psychologist and they valued very much a great education, high performing grades and academically moving into a company that had a solid 401k and management plan and training plan. And I think now in hindsight, I know that especially for my father who grew up with a family who was really poor, I think that when you don't have the exposure to what it means to have unlimited wealth or create anything you want or wake up and have an impact on how you get to live your day and build something that you love and make money doing it, I can see why there was a high value placed on a traditional academic career and then a traditional go work for a company, move up the ladder. Mm. And so because I had that natural natural tendency and, and, and I think in my teen years, it was a problem. I actually went to the same reform school Paris Hilton went to. Mm. My parents sent me for two years. Mm. I think that one of the questions of questioning the status quo and asking why do we have to do it this way in my teens did not serve me. <laughs> mm. You know, but I believe that if you have that tendency to be courageous enough to question why, even if it is your professor or your father or someone in authority and wonder why is it this way when it doesn't necessarily make sense for it to be that way. I think all of those things go into the entrepreneurial stew in Mm. order to have a success. And actually the fact is willing to fail, willing to not fit in to the rest of the folks who are performing well because they're getting their bonuses and their stock options. And you have to imagine when I was, my career was taking off, I was like, that was the Google era. Right. Dot com era. All of these companies were getting funded to do all of these interesting things on the internet. And, and then there was the, the bust, right? Everyone poured everything into these dot coms and then it all fell apart. Yeah. And people were moving back into traditional pharma and corporate and and capital i think intensive and expenses like equipment and things that were tangible hmm. so you know at the end of the day i don't know if i have an employment bone in my body i think if someone came and said i can consult i can do a, i love consulting i love seeing people succeed and be but i don't know if you said to me tracy here's the ceo executive role at PNG. Right. I don't know if that would. If that would get it. I want to, I want to jump into your career, but really quickly, I want to unpack something you said a little bit. Um, I think it, just what you said about being sent to reform school and, and the rebellious nature of, of you as a teen and how that has sort of been a foundation in some ways, I guess, if you flip the rebellious nature and look at it on the bright side, it's in many ways, the foundation and, and part of the fabric of what's allowed you to be successful is challenging the status quo. You're a parent. And so there's a fine line there, right? And I wasn't intending to take this into a podcast about parenting. I don't have a child. So I'm the least qualified person ever other than my parents are great parents. But like, where, where, how do you think parents or people listening who have children should be thinking about the nuanced edge between critical thinking, challenging the status quo and how that in many ways is a prerequisite to being successful entrepreneurially and how that can snowball into being disruptive and destructive um, because it does feel like there's a, an edge there, if you will. No, it's a great point. I struggle with it myself. I mean, the fact is we are taught to, as parents, we need to have power over, right? So we are told, keep your kid in line, make sure they're sitting still, make sure they're seen, not heard, please be quiet, keep your voice down. Don't touch this. Like, right. This is from tiny baby. 
And so I, I personally think there are two types of entrepreneurs. I think there are those who come from, I can do anything kind of a narcissistic self-entitled, maybe the world is my oyster and I can do it because I, because I, I can. And then there's the entrepreneur who's running from failure and fear-based. And so the fear is the fuel mm. and the fuel may be coming from a rough childhood and seeing all the things you didn't want to have happen to you. And so therefore the pivot is I'll do whatever it takes to be successful. And I have no life balance because it's like all in. And it's fear of fool, looking foolish, fear of failure, fear fear of losing everything, fear of going backward and being back where you were. So I, I believe that the generation of my, my children and, and going forward with everything that's happening with AI, with everything that's happening with replacement of some of the skills that we held so valuable for so many years right. as academics, when my son, my oldest son, who's 16, and he says, why do I have to go to college? Like, mm. What are they going to teach me at college? Why couldn't I just go out and be successful? And I really do say to this day, I'm so grateful that I went to Columbia for my master's because in the first decade of being an entrepreneur, it was literally the only thing that validated that I was smart mm. and that people would say, oh, she went to Columbia, she has a master's, which was the irony of the whole thing. Because truly, if you ask me how much of getting a master's had something to do with a successful entrepreneurial career, I always believe everything's connected. So right right time, right place. I wouldn't have met my first funding partner had I not gone to grad school. Yeah, There are certain things that I, I couldn't have done the way I did them had I not had it happen. But I definitely don't think Columbia was attributable to entrepreneurial. Yeah causation correlation that whole thing will you will you make your kids go to college yeah i mean i don't know if make is the right word because i'm a really big believer in letting them fail and then letting them figure it out if it doesn't fit sure and um so i i'm encouraging of them going to college but i i think like i said we all as humans have come into the world and you'll find this Noah, when you have children is there's some attributes that they have that remind you of you. Mm. And then there are aspects of these, these people that you think, who is this person? Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Yeah. So you have to try and try and do your best to shepherd. But one thing I would say that I face, and I think a lot of women I talk to who are very successful have had and faced is that you really never feel like you're a 10 out of 10 on the parenting scale. And mm. if you do, you may be a little out to lunch because you're just <laughs> kind of doing the best you can every day. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's the lesson. I mean, that's sort of like being an entrepreneur, right? It's as cheesy as that transition was, that is kind of the reality of it, right? Like, and and I think I'm curious if this resonates with you right? Running Uncharted, running my fund, advising, like if there's ever a day where it feels like everything's firing on all cylinders, I'm like, oh shit, what's about to happen that's going to take this air out of my tires? Because this is not how it's supposed to be going. Right. And I've heard I've heard a lot of entrepreneurs talk about that at our, at our dinners where it's like the, the, the chaos is almost where they're comfortable because it's so, like if you actually live in the reality of what it takes to build something successful, you know that it should never feel easy, right? Until you've really got product market fit and then it's a whole other set of challenges. But I'm curious, like how, how does that show up in your day-to-day, right? Like how do you think about that tension between pushing hard and things feeling like they're in flow versus the reality that things need to be hard to be worthwhile? Yeah, it's a great question. I I was sitting with a female entrepreneur, founder, friend of mine, who has a company that's about 10 years old and she has about 200 employees. And she was saying to me, you know, I'm doing about 600,000 a day at this point. Wow. And, uh, she owns upwards of 70% of the company. Wow. And, uh, yeah. Good for her. That is unbelievable. And I said, so how does that feel? 
And she goes, you know what, Trace? She said, this was the thing I had always dreamed of. And I had always envisioned. And I had always hoped and hoped and hoped and worked so hard and burned myself out and worked weekends and nights and traveled 27 days in a row before I took a day off kind of thing. And she said, you know, I don't feel any differently than I felt when we were barely making payroll every two weeks. And so we started to dig into that because she's at an age, she's early forties and has children and has married. And I thought, you know, what's so, so interesting about us as humans is actually when we establish what we want to do, build and be in the world, whether it's personal, professional, through relationships or whatever it may be, I don't know if we actually can ever be satisfied because when we get to that peak, it's for the first time that we see out and understand there's three peaks above us. And now that we're at the peak, we think, oh no, we want that peak. Right. Right. hundred percent. It's story of my life. hundred percent. And so how do you, so, okay. So if it's the story of your life, then it becomes, so is this the right person for me to marry Hmm. or is there, is there someone else that really may satisfy this aspect of my life? Is this the business I double down in or should I hedge my bets and open something else or buy something else? Right. And so start to think about how you lean into being at this place of satisfaction. Yeah. There's a healthy balance between wanting more and being excited to wake up in the morning and eager to see what unfolds versus sacrificing all of the personal life that you have in an effort to attain this one thing, thinking it's going to make you happier than where you are today. One one thousand percent. I I don't have an answer to this, and I'm I, I'd love to jam on it a little bit with you. I, I, for me personally, and this is not about me, but a lot of this in my in the journey of my last you know three to five years, as I've started to find the right lane to play in, and started my fund, and started to have some you know early success, and obviously I'm still growing. Like a lot of it has been, I think, following gut and intuition of like my my body and soul as weird as that sounds tends to tell me pretty strongly if I'm on the right track, even with regards to like the right people. Right. And I'm sure, you know, I'm an empathetic person. You read people's energy, you follow like, ah, this, this doesn't feel right. Right. Like I started companies that we pulled the plug on. Cause it was like, eh, you know what? And that gut may have been, you know, a very tactical reasoning of like the ceilings not there. That's going to make this exciting. But a lot of this is following the gut. Um, how have you navigated that, right? Like you have had a multifaceted, multidimensional career. You've launched brands, you've invested, you've advised, you run a paid community, you're, you run a beauty accelerator. Like, how have you been like, okay, this is where to double down. Cause I'm sure. And even on the personal side, I'm sure a lot of people listening, whether it's the person they're going to marry or the business they're going to start or the campaign they're going to run analysis paralysis is a real thing. And, and it's that constant balance between like, okay, screw it, go like, click it. We got to lock it in, go versus like, let's do one more iteration. Like how, how has your process been there? I'm so, I'm so encouraged to hear you say that you would pull the plug on a business. If you felt like the founder relationship or the dynamic was not right. Sure. And honestly, had I been your age and had that uh, willingness to be open to the, to the gut because the head is such a powerhouse, right? It's so over indexed on critical thinking and logic. And I've already invested this much time or I've already invested this much money yeah. and I'm seeing all these red flags. What do I do? Yeah. And I would say most people, including myself, were too worried and risk averse to fail to pull the plug or to pivot. Mm. So the the pain point, the pain point and the expensive nature of the implications or fallout of that is that it catches up to you at some point. So if you override that that gut and you just double down and say, I'm in this too far. How many of you have said this listening, right? I'm in, I'm in too far. I've invested too much. I put in too much time. I'm already there. I'm just going to power through. 
I'm going to get to an exit and then I'm going to pivot and go do the thing I really want to do. Right. And I can tell you, I said this in my marriage. I said this in my relationship with my business partner and the implications of that decision and the fallout of that decision and having to rebuild and reconsider how you want to approach it. One thing I would say to anyone listening who's sitting on the fence there is that it will eventually catch up. You can't outsmart it. You can't out talk yourself out of it. You can't out nice it. You can't out therapize it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, right? it's the sunk cost fallacy, right? It's, it's one of the things they're supposed to teach us in school. And I think it looks a hell of a lot easier on the textbook page in the statistics example or, or whatever class it was in than it does when you've got blood, sweat, tears, life savings, equity, relationship, capital, political capital, all tied up in this thing. I guess the flip side argument to that would be, do you think there are examples for people listening where the right answer is to push through and how do you measure that? You know, I guess it's each, it's each person has to gauge where there is that breaking point and where the assessment point is. I now have friends just like you who will hold me accountable to being uh, accountable to a response to that question by a certain date. So for example, I, I sat with a friend of mine about two months ago on an initiative and an investment I've made in this last year. And I said to her, I'm not sure this investment is the right thing because I don't have the time to put into it the way I need to, in order for it to be successful. And she said, what is your, what's your plan? And I said, well, I've kind of thrown money at it in order to build a team against it so that that can work without me in hopes that it does based on just a strategic plan and a quarterly meetings. Yeah. And she said to me, you're in too nascent of a stage of this business for this to work without you. Mm -hmm. You can tell yourself that this is a good idea. Yeah. What if we sit down September 15th and regroup and what are your KPIs? And I told her exactly what they were. And so we have an upcoming date in order to sit down and have a talk off about it. And she asked me the question that I think is the hardest one to answer in the moment, which is if you get to that 15th date and you haven't gotten the results that you need to see, what would your response be? And in that case, I said, I would, I would shut, sorry, I would shut uh, down the business or I would look to find a buyer for it. Sure. Um, and in, and that's easier said than done, because frankly, this is something I put a year of my life into last year and I really believe in it. It's just the timing's wrong and not the concept. Yep. Right. So I don't know what the answer necessarily is for those listening, but what I would tell you is in the other case of the business partner I had formerly, we had hundreds of millions of dollars invested and we had a lot riding on the success and a lot of professional reputation tied to it. Yeah. So in that case, you know, I think in hindsight, the thing I would recommend is to, first of all, set your cap table up where there's a shotgun mm-hmm. clause or a buyout period mm-hmm. in the story forever. Yep. And two, I would say that maintaining a real board who can vote and have an impact rather than an advisory board, because a lot of founders think they're protecting themselves by having an advisory board, but not, not a real board. Right. That there is a double-edged sword to that decision. And that, you know, sometimes a board who has the real right and fiduciary responsibility to succeed, to see the success of the business rather than the success of the individuals, which you hope that's always synonymous, but it's not always. Yeah. But the hope is that you have a board who's really going to do what's right for the business. Sorry, someone was trying to come in to clean the room. I had to say, wait, Um, I want to, I think what you just hit on is one of the most relevant problems facing high potential entrepreneurs, which is like, you know, this language of business with relation to even, even simple things like what company form should I use, which to us sound fairly simple, 
but to a lot of people who have brilliant ideas and uh, specifically people who may not have the same uh, access to mentorship generally. And, and this is going to be, I hope, a nice dovetail and, and segue into inner fifth, but people who, who don't normally look like what society has carved out a founder to look like, if you will, right? Which is one, it's a problem in and of itself, but things that may sound simple to us since we've been in the game. What company form should I use? What does a board do, right? What's the difference between a board of directors and board of advisors? What form should I use to raise money? How do I raise money? These are problems that while you can read a textbook on how they work, quote unquote, the right answer is so nuanced based on the situation. And there's so much art versus science to it. And I, I am seeing now running a fund that a lot of people don't even know where to start, right? They shoot themselves in the foot over stuff that if they just had someone who could walk them through in 20 minutes, how to think about this, like you've just done for people like, Hey, here's why having a real board despite the fact that it may scare you because you don't think you're in control is actually really healthy, right? So many people don't have access to that, right? right? How do we, how do you think about whether it's with women entrepreneurs or underrepresented, 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 excuse me, entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs in general, how do you start to impart that wisdom? Because that is a real problem. How many people who have brilliant ideas and are so capable don't have access to that, to the knowledge to even get started? So true. You know, at Interfifth in our May intensive, one of our guest speakers on day one was a woman who exited her first business for 40 million. And she's exiting wow. right now her second business as we speak for about 600 million. And she, Badass. she's 41. Wow. So here, and, and by the way, she's a tax attorney by nature, by trade. That's not the business. She's built her business on lending and uh, refinancing and lending practices around everything crypto, right? So she's done ex incredibly well. She's set up 401ks and sapphires and all these things in currency outside of kind of regular currency and has had this incredible sure. success. So one of the things she shared with our inner fifth group which blew my mind is she said, when I exited for the 40 million, I had this advisory group who came and sat with me and, and gave me a list of 10 things not to do in the first year. 10 things like do not lend money to family. Do not lend money to uh -oh. family. Do not make a major purchase of a house, a car, or a boat for at least nine to 12 months. They gave her wow. this, this list, right? So she said, I proceeded to go down the list and do every single thing they told me not to. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> and get this. Classic. This is the best story ever. Because what she told us is, here's the 10 things I did. Here's what happened as a result. And yeah. here's how I screwed myself. And now that I'm exiting for 600 million, listen to me. I'm telling you, here's how I'm structuring this exit. And obviously- mm. This it's 40 million is pretty life-changing, but 600 is like a whole nother level. Generational, yeah. So she said, I didn't know at the time, I thought I was such a failure. At least three months, she said she sat in bed with her covers over her head. Like, what did I wow. do? Because wow. blew it and felt so much pressure as a result of what Hornet's nest she had stirred up after going through and doing everything she was told not to do. She said, I didn't yeah. even have the guts to call the people and say, here are the things I did. Help yeah. me out. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of shame. That's amazing. I honestly, the, I like that idea of here are the 10 things. I mean, even if we could get people trusting that, like the playbook of at different stages of your entrepreneurial journey, like here are the 10 things that is super, super important. Super important. And it's not simple. It's not that simple. It's not. And then I would also say, to you that, to your question of how do we impart this to people who are listening or to those who have not, know, don't know the structure, don't know how to set up their business, haven't really thought through the implications. The best thing that is about humans is that we do not learn in words, we learn in action. Mm -hmm. And so I always think if someone can learn from the things I've done wrong, God bless, but I also know that at the end of the day, we can listen, like we all have read the rich dad, poor dad. We all have read think, think and grow rich. 
we've all read getting to the top. Like there are some basics that I would say have been passed down from these thought leaders to us to give us their wisdom. And yet we still go out and screw it up. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But what I also know for a fact is she couldn't be in the place of taking that $600 million had she not taken the 40 and made every mistake under the sun. Yeah. She didn't know at the time that she had the 40, that she would be on the path to 600. She had no idea. She thought that was her one and only forever exit. So my, my point in this is if you're listening, get a really solid, incredible group of advisors who can be one phone call away to give you the guidance that you need or spend the money and hire. I use Mark Selig. He's in New York of Selig and Meister. They're incredible, but I, I never again would use just a lawyer. I would only use someone who hasn't had an exit, who's been a business person, who's been an investor, who sat on the side of being personally at risk of losing their fortune as a business person who happens to also be a lawyer. That's my advice. That's my guide. I do not go and talk to a lawyer unless Mm -hmm. he has a business and he has exited that company and he has had a successful transaction. That is someone that writes documents and sets up contracts for me. But the person I go to and I pay for the advice. Once I get feedback from my community, I go to him and I say, here's what I'm thinking about. How would you think about this? Sure. And he tells me he's a VC investor. He's a private equity investor. He owns a huge law firm. He's super smart in all areas of business. And he's also a dad. So he thinks about business overall as it impacts your relationship with your family, your kids, your you know your best friend, how it may He's got a perspective and it took me 20 years to find him. Wow. But there are lots of them out there. Lots of these very successful guys, just like Michael Loeb, who have had massive, massive success, who have learned the hard way because you've blown it and you've wins and losses. And then you know who your your go-to people are to help you out of a bind or think through something. I call them my foxhole, my foxhole team. Mm. They're part of my foxhole posse. <laughs> I love it. I think everybody needs one of those. Yeah. Let's um let's talk about Hatch and the unbelievable amount of revenue you've done through that ecosystem, if you will. I think ecosystem is probably an appropriate word to call it at this point, right? Because it's touched a lot of different things. It's an incubator. I know you invest. Tell us the origin story, because I think the there's there's something interesting with regards to how how big it's gotten versus the amount of money you've raised. And it's just a deeply impressive story. So I'd love to hear how it all came together. Well, I, you know, it's been 13 years. I'm no longer with Hatch Beauty in any way. Um, I'm And I'm so proud of the work we did there and what we built. But in 2006 through 2009, I was co-creating brands with retailers for brands. So for example, Juice Beauty was thinking about how do we generate and grow revenue? And I helped them uh, with the original concept and creation of Juice Organics. And it was the first organic skincare brand at mass that was sizable in nature. And that was with CBS. And that that allowed me to understand the intricacies of how retailers are desperately seeking unique propositions in brands that are exclusive or quasi-exclusive to them, but don't look like private label or control brands are truly standalone brands like third party would bring them. Sure. And then the second big opportunity I had was at that point in time was with Costco who I brought a team together. We went in and presented under the Kirkland Signature label what their Kirkland Signature brand could look like as a trend forward, really well-defined, well-developed brand. And with all the bells and whistles from a retail and marketing side, other than just what I would call kind of a store brand or private label concept. And at that time, I had a a friend who had a agency, a creative and branding agency, and I would send several clients every year to have creative and branding redone and went to him and said, hey, I think there's a 
a big opportunity in the market to co-create brands with retailers as a thought partner, as a sidecar, as a development partner that would allow us to get under the hood and really understand from their consumer and how their consumer shopping to inform our development. And we would use our agency chops to go in and give them strategy and advice on how they develop. Hmm. And, you know, we conceptualized it in 2009. We put together a couple of decks. We went and presented a couple of key retail retail partners like Dillard's and Trader Joe's and folks like that. Wow. But we came to find really quickly is that retailers were really eager to find someone who could step into this co-creation role with them, but have a speed to market positioning, which would allow them to step into a nine month timeline instead of a 36 month timeline, which is typical for most yeah. of these large CPGs. And so frankly, right time, right place. And this is really before Instagram and so at that time, we looked for A-list celebrities to align with, to help us with marketing because we didn't have any marketing uh, budget and mm. worked with retailers to use all their VIP and extra care and specialty shopping VIP cards to help drive awareness. And that was really the, the you know, the, th- the fact is, is with any kind of retail partner or customer relationship, you're only as good as last year's shipments and last year's success. So yeah. Yeah. 2010 moved to 2011 to 2012, and it was just rapid expansion. And the beauty of the beauty industry, to be candid, and the exciting part of the beauty industry is that there's always an appetite for innovation and newness. And frankly, retailers are always seeking connectivity to the customer and a really um, narrow point of view from a narrow customer alignment perspective. So rather than broad reaching, they really are eager to custom and cater to every need of every customer coming through from an individual's perspective and give them that full experience. And so I think when I think about people saying, oh, it's such a competitive industry, I think it's not any more competitive than the 335 million customers that are in the United States, like truly when you start to aggregate the needs and likes of each of these very specific customer profiles, there's all the opportunity in the world. There's no limit to what you could create and to build and grow. What do you think? Um, let's, let's unpack the beauty industry for a minute. So I'm, I, I don't know if you know this, but I've spent a lot of time in the alcohol industry and there's, um, people often draw a lot of parallels between the two. So I know booze very well. I don't know beauty as well, but I have a lot of friends who build in it. Um, I agree that it feels like one of the ones where it's super competitive, but there's a playbook, right? Like you, if you know, if you have um, an edge, whether the edge is the celebrity you partner with, the unique formulation or the brand or the connection to Sephora or whatever it is, like there is a playbook that you can run in the ones that you've seen work, right? Whether it's, you know, one you've invested in or advised or ones you've co-created, like what are the commonalities, right? What makes a beauty brand work in this market and, and when you were doing it with Hatch as well? I think it's changing, but I, I believe you're right. First of all, it is highly competitive. I think uh, the playbook is to have an authentic founder story that feels like it really makes sense and resonates. And that founder sure. needs to come and have their own community following. So they need to also not only resonate from that pitch perspective, but resonate from their community uh, engagement perspective. It doesn't need to be a celebrity. It can just be someone who has a great engaged following. I have two investments with two different brands and own two different companies with two uh, individual women and one has maybe 135,000 followers on Instagram and one maybe 200,000. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but they're highly comp- highly committed, yeah. highly engaged and deeply, deeply resonant. Um, and so creating product that makes sure, so I can give you a poor example. Yeah, please. We were creating a product recently that we were planning to launch in the fall. 
And we were planning on making it in China. And this is a product that a lot of beauty companies make in China. So I thought, you know, it's not a big deal. The more I got into the customer reviews, the more I got into the customer conversation, and the more I listened to what she was talking about, what's important to her. She's faith-based and she's very, very pro-US. And I woke up on Friday night and I said, we can't do China. And I know every other brand you could point and you could say to me, Tracy, that makes no sense. There are these 15 other brands. They're all made in China and they all make the same product in the same category and they're all selling. But in this case, if we're really authentically listening to this customer who feels so deeply heard by my business partner, who's the, the spokesperson and the front facing person, then what we're doing is really incongruent to who she is. And so what that means is additional higher cost of goods, pushing out our launch date by at least six weeks and going back to our retail partner and saying, hey, we thought we we're going to launch in October. It's probably going to look more like December 1st, which I have yet to do. It's supposed to happen tomorrow. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but the reality is I have to stay true to the brand. So part of the playbook, I would say, if you call it that, is to really think about what that customer journey and customer experience is just like drinking booze. Like you want to surprise and delight. I can buy something and I just bought something I saw in all, all over my Instagram. I heard all about it as one of these mixed drink cans, delicious, like get your margarita in a can, get your this with all yeah, these, sure. celebrities, all these celebrities attached to it, celebrities you and I know. And so I was so excited to go get it. And it has like organic sugar cane and blah, blah, blah. And I took two sips and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so bad. Couldn't even finish it. I even tried like sprucing it up. I added lime, I put it on ice. So I was like, how do we make this yeah. better? But I and guess- still, like, And it's still- Terrible. Terrible. After, I think I know what you're talking about. After, after we're done recording, I'll tell you the brand. Um, I think I know. I I can't. I have to be careful, like you do, of actually saying it out loud because I'm sure the people who know, yeah, yeah. who are going to listen. Yeah, I hear you. Sure. So I think what we always have to stay aligned to is making sure that we're not trying to pull a fast one over on her, but that we're really delivering to her what she's expecting, and yeah. when she opens it and tries it, it's so much better than she could have even thought it could be. Yeah. Yeah. I think also the, um, there's a lot of beauty brands and there is a lot of booze brands. This goes back to something you said around, you know, 130,000 Instagram followers. That's a lot to be clear, but you, some would argue that that's, you know, when you're comparing it to Jennifer Lopez, that's not a lot, right. Um, or Selena Gomez, but there's a, graveyard of celebrity booze and beauty brands that yeah. launched by following the playbook right and i just was talking about this in a in a in an interview the other day like and a lot of them fail most of them fail it's far from a guarantee to success and we have investments we've made out of my fund where the founders aren't celebrities but they have communities of people who actually love them and actually are like engaged right. and they go to a store and they line around the block and the people are, they're no names, but they have a loyal community around them. And so I, I think it's, it's, you know, we a million marketers have said this, and I'm sure the advertising week community will resonate with this, but it really is not about the size of the audience. They have to be big enough, but it really is about, do they actually care, right? I think consumers are smarter than we give them credit for. Would you agree? thousand percent. And by the way, and this is for me, maybe others do it differently, but I would rather go low profile on something and not go sing it to the mountaintops that I've invested. I'm behind this founder. I've done this. I'm building this. Right. I'd rather go into sleeper mode and be behind the scenes and then watch the success of it and, and know that it's happening because that customer has an organic and deep connection to the individual, not because I'm using an old relationship with a retailer and saying, please put this in 
to retail, this is going to do really well. I don't want to do it until I've seen it perform. Yeah. The truth is, it's your name. You can't, you have to, you have to hundred percent. I'd much rather take an inbound call from someone who says, Hey, I'm checking this out. I understand you invest in or you own this. Can we get involved? Can we participate rather than make a phone call? Yeah, I love it. I want to be conscious of time and respectful of yours. We have just a little bit of time left, but um, tell us about InterFifth. Tell us about how you started InterFifth. Tell us about the power of InterFifth. It's a it's a phenomenal community. It resonates in many levels, obviously running Uncharted, different structures, but similar in many ways in the philosophy. Um, tell, tell us the whole story. Tell us the vision. Tell us what's going on. If you were a woman entrepreneur, I'd be in, I'd be recruiting you. Because <laughs> why? You, well, because you fit our profile. So we're looking for growth mindset individuals who really pride themselves on, on being transformative in how they move through the world. So they're really committed to growth mindset techniques, whether that's meditation, transformation, expansion. They're, these are typically individuals who may go to Costa Rica to an ayahuasca journey for a week. And then they have a breath coach and then they have a mindfulness coach and they go and do extreme sports. And we say inner fifth is for, is an elite female entrepreneur invite only community. That means mastermind meets membership. And it's about accountability and intentionality, but Mm -hmm. every single member has to take a growth mindset assessment because if they do not score on a growth mindset basis of leaning, like Carol Dweck has said so much around a growth mindset, they cannot be teacher. They're not teachable. And so people who have had this, who are sitting in that place of, I've got this, you don't need to tell me, I already know I've got it handled. Thanks so much. Those are not our people because at the end of the day, they can't contribute to the community and they can't give back and they can't also receive. Sure. So we say we're from Bentley's to dirt bikes because we're aspirationally ambitious and willing to go all in and try anything, but we're really about creating wealth. And the inner fifth is in the middle of the four pillars of health, wealth, relationship, and purpose. So the inner Mm -hmm. fifth is the bridge. Got it. And our members, I just, we had an event here about two weeks ago, maybe $4 billion of net worth. Wow. Self-made women. Wow. Some at the very top and of the top. Some women are in the beginning and middle of their entrepreneurial journey. So it really means nothing to us, whether your business is doing a million and a half or doing a hundred million. It but doesn't you need to be over. It needs to be over a million dollars in revenue, right? You have, to, you have to exceed a million in revenue in your business annually, or you will have had to raise 10 million. Got it. Or you would have just had to exit within the last five years at 20 million or above. Got it. Those are pretty specific and um, fairly rare waters, right? I mean, uh, they're achievable for some, but that's that's not just anyone who can get into that. That's a high caliber group. And members pay? Members pay to be a part of it, right? They pay annually. They pay annually. They pay to be in the mastermind, which is a three-day spring intensive and it's in person. And then a three-day fall mastermind in person. It's deep work. It's committed work. It's like going into something where you're making the commitment to be out of pocket from seven in the morning to 10 at night, and you're willing to go all in. Um, We do push people into fear so that they can understand what they're capable of. And it's around external mastery and internal mastery. Hmm. And the, the membership is in an effort to ensure that what you learn at the intensive is carried over into your everyday life. So there's books to read curriculum that we undergo. There are book reviews and intensive in their, in the virtual side on the book side. And then we have inner circle dinners every month, somewhat like uncharted with its And it's a topic-led conversation by someone who is an expert in the field. Amazing. And you make it topical. You don't, you don't mix 
genres of people, if you will, like different industries, et cetera? I do. So oh, this, you do. Month, okay, got it. this month is plant medicine and that's taught to us by an MD and the implications of cognition and expansion. And next month's topic dinner is on the quantum and some of the science and transformation, not, not theoretically, but the science around what they have discovered in the quantum. Wow. I would still to be a fly on the wall in those rooms. That sounds insane. Yeah. That sounds insane. I I love, I mean, one of the greatest pleasures of my career is getting to moderate these uncharted dinners with people that are so much smarter than me. And it's just like an honor to be in the room. And I'm sure that you just to to listen to the caliber of people that you very clearly attract in inner fifth that to to have, like, it's very, very impactful to have that caliber of human let their guard down and have an honest conversation that's focused for more than like 20 minutes. Cause everyone's so busy. Like it's very rare, right? It's one of the things with uncharted and very clearly with been fifth. It's like, that's where you have to over index, right? You know, sure. you can connect for 20 minutes on a call and FaceTime and zooms and meetings. And it's very like high frequency, yes. high touch, but it's not deep. And to have that caliber person going deep onto a topic, like you're going to learn some shit, excuse my French. Right. Yeah, that's cool. It's literally my favorite thing that I do. Not that I don't love the other things. The other things come with 20 years of experience. So it's somewhat automatic, right? Yeah. Whereas this inner fifth experience, and this is our soft launch here. So we've limited the number of members that we are allowing in. And we have people fly in from all over. So we have sure. quite an LA contingency, but we have these really interesting women sure. coming in. I just feel so privileged to participate. And even though I'm the founder with a group of women who are just incredible as co-founders, I feel like I'm learning just like everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's I, I commend you on what you built with Fifth. It sounds, it sounds very special. And to all the women entrepreneurs who are listening, if you fit the criteria, um, where can, where can people find more about Fifth, Tracy? Just the website Fifth, and there's a mindset growth mindset assessment. It's free. You might as well take it because it's going to tell you something about where you sit. And guess what? Growth mindset can change. So mm-hmm. you can be in a tough place for a season of your life and you definitely don't have a growth mindset. You could be in this place of, you know what? I can barely make it through today and I'm figuring this out. But if you're leaning in to wanting to understand, if you're listening to podcasts, if you're doing reading, if you're hearing about things, if you're researching, and you have the success thing down, or you think you do, or you need some advice or guidance, this is the group to go to because it's about transparency and vulnerability, but it's also the group to go to, to say, I've got this over-indexed success metric here, but I'm not successful either in my family and my personal or my relationship. I'm trying to figure this out. Sure. Sure. I love it. So we are coming up on time and I want to be respectful here. I have one I have one slash two-ish more questions for you that we can wrap up on, but is there anything you want to talk about or any messages you want to share with the audience before we do wrap? Um, I think I really appreciate what you're doing with Uncharted. I was so blown away by the concept. And I think it's so important to give entrepreneurs a safe place to have a meal under the guise of everything sacred. And you're not competitors in this room. We're all collaborators because frankly, you're creating rooms of who's. And as entrepreneurs, we're how people, right? We wake up every day. How do I do this? How do I scale? How do I raise capital? How do I restructure my business? How do I deal with this legal issue? Yeah. And what Uncharted to me represents is this incredibly rich who network of now I have other people who I can call and brainstorm this. I'm not alone. Instead of it taking me three weeks to figure it out, it takes me 30 minutes. Yeah. Because- pick up the phone. And I don't think we realize the value of that and the richness of that. Yep. I think that's exactly right. No, I appreciate you saying that. It's, um, it's, it's an honor. So here's the last question. Uh, it's sort of two different questions and you can choose to treat them as one or answer either one or, or both. Um, what's one thing in the last year or two years or so that you used to believe strongly that you've changed your mind on? And then the part two slash different way of phrasing that question is, 
what's a piece of advice you've given someone or given people or used to give that you now look back and you're like, you know what? I don't actually think that's true. That's the wrong advice. And so treat that as either question or similar or different questions and take it whichever way you want. Um, I'm always curious to hear from high conviction, high um, high caliber people who've accomplished a lot. We have to have strong beliefs to do what we do and to do what you do. And so I, I think it's important to recognize that opinions change and one of the strong opinions loosely held. And I always like giving the audience and others an example of like, what does that actually look like when you're like, I believe this because I have to, and then I changed. Yeah, no, it's such an interesting question. I mean, the thing that comes to mind for me the most is this idea that this is hard and we have to work really hard in order to earn our success. Like there's some correlation between super hard, burning it both ends, white knuckling it, sitting there on the edge of your seat versus success. And that invariably, when you look at someone like Jeff Bezos, who talks about, and you've seen him at his desk, which was a door. Yeah, the old picture, yeah, of course. Um, and everyone used to laugh. Remember they were like making fun of the guy because he was selling books online and they're like, why not go to Barnes and Noble? Why would someone buy a book? Right. And so he worked really, really hard. And when you take a look at what he's built and what kind of business, I mean, he's the last thing that guy's in is in the book business, right? He's in like a gajillion different businesses, but, um, I think what we need to let go of is this idea that if you work harder, if you just put in that much more time, if you double down and you do all nighters, if you get on that plane and you work your ass off, like somehow you're going to get there faster. Hmm. No, there, no, there's no there. My girlfriend a week ago, sitting in my living room, telling me she's doing 600,000 a day. And she's still not there. And so when I think about it, I'm like, wow, I hope that we can all be a little gentler with ourselves and a little less critical of ourselves. And every time I hear a should, I'm like, really? Hmm. That's my immediate spidey sense that I'm on the wrong path. Hmm. So I would say in a nutshell, there's zero correlation. And if I, if you challenge me and said, Tracy, show me an example, I could list out 10 examples of how someone had and was sitting on a dot-com email address, a dot-com address that was a like investment that they made for 10 bucks and literally get 60 million bucks because someone calls and says, hey, we're launching, Nike calls and says, hey, we're launching this XYZ shoe, we need to buy this.com from you. How 60 million sound great. Where do we wire it? I mean, but it happens every you're not you're not saying hard work and success aren't correlated though. Is it or is that what you're saying? I think joyful work, I think exuberant work. I think when I'm in flow, I'm I do. I love to work. I work every Saturday and Sunday. And people go, why would you do that? Don't you need a day off? I take any time I want off any day. I don't care if it's Monday, Friday, Sunday, when I need time off, I go do my thing. But when you love what you do and you wake up and you're like, this is freaking the best thing ever. How could you put that into hard work? Like I don't, as soon as I start getting irritable and agitated and frustrated and starting to use the F word a lot, mm. I'm like, I think I need to go take a break. Mm. Interesting. <laughs> it's, it's, um, I think a lot about how hard work is a prereq, and I do think it's important. I think you have to work hard. I think it's so super- What does that mean to you? Help me understand. Define hard work to you. What does that mean? It's a good question. And it's, I, I the cop-out answer would be just push, right? Just push harder, right? That's a cop-out answer. Um, I want to give you a real answer to that. What does that mean to me? It means that, I have a laser focus on my goals and I am taking a, an intense and fairly calculated approach to like, what is that actually going to take to do that? Right. Like I'm, I'm look, I'm, I believe that luck is a massive part. It takes plays a huge, like the example you give of the domain, that is some luck, some strategy, but pretty lucky, right? That's luck. And so I think you have to 
for people to be successful, like you have to be lucky and I don't, but I think you do have to, my friend Sahel Bloom has been on this podcast talks about increasing your luck surface area, right? Like, so to give yourself, give yourself more chances to be lucky, you need to, I think work harder. I don't mean work dumb and like, I don't really believe in hustle culture, but I do believe in like, you know, if, if my goal is to raise a new bigger fund or my goal is to grow my business or scale uncharted in terms of the revenue or do more advisory work or grow my media presence, right? Like there are steps that I need to take to make those things happen. And on a Saturday when some friends are, you know, screwing off at the park and drinking or hanging out or whatever, and I'm choosing to choosing keyword to your point, I quite enjoy it. Um, I'm choosing to be on my path like that to me, that defines as hard work, right? Like I'm, I'm focused. It's a grind, but I do like it. And maybe that's the point you're getting at is like, you have to like this a little bit to be able to do it with this amount of longevity. For sure. And the G word that you just used when it feels like a grind, my recommendation would be to find a who so that you can offload that list of responsibilities that feel grindy to the who, and you can go be in your genius Hmm. because there is no one that can be you. You are the individual imprint, the snowflake that exists, that even created the concept to begin with, right? Like without you and Michael, there is no uncharted without that idea, the brainstorm, the plan, and then everything that's comments, the momentum behind it. So if there is a moment in which something's starting to grind, and I really ask myself that question, because there are a couple of things I get lost and I think, oh, I'm the only person who can do this. Really? How about put that into a job list and start to go, okay, here are the seven things that just, I I could procrastinate all day because I hate doing these things. That's the biggest red flag of you need a who. Yeah. Right. Because we as entrepreneurs think in terms of a how. And once we start loading our plates with how do I get through all this crap and I have to do this, there are so many resources and so many people, the fingertips of the world that right now get up and like freaking go ballistically happy over creating data lists and loving pivot tables and want to create like there's bajillions of people who love that. That's not my thing. Right. So, you know what I do? I create a loom. And I teach someone what I want. I, I have loom on my computer. I send them a 10 minute loom and I'm like, listen, here's what I need. I want you to go do this, do this, do this. Here's what it looks like. Here's how I want you to work it out. This is my phase one. Send it back when you're done. I'll be here in four hours. I'll give you some feedback. And then I do a, be- a second loom. And the second I see them growing momentum around their to-dos that are the how of the who, <laughs> I'm like, I get more freedom. Yeah. But you so, still work hard. I think I'm smart. I think I yeah. work smart. I think and you are there. Yeah, I think you're I mean, right. I think I work hard, but you know what? Noah, this is like I said when I was 12. This is a thing. This is a thing. You wake up, you are wired for this. If you gave me a gajillion dollars, if you said to me, Jeff Bezos level wealth, go, I would still do it. Yeah. I think that's the, that that is really the key word here, right? Of even the people that you and I know who've made tons of money, they're still in the game, right? Because they like it, right? right. And so it's hard, and I think they work hard, and I think it's I think it would be I think it would be unfair to discredit the amount of hard work success takes because I I do think like the risk in saying it doesn't take hard work is that people think it's easy. It's definitely not easy, right? It's very right. difficult, and there's time, and there's curveballs, and there's you Let's know start. there's all these setbacks on the journey and it's never linear. Um, but but Malcolm Gladwell had something when he said it's 10,000 hours and then you're totally an expert. There is something to staying in your genius, knowing that the 10,000 hours have afforded you the ability to go in fast and hot and offloading your your lists of things that aren't doing your genius is probably the most time invested smart way to go to do work hard and work smart very true very true uh i think i tried to give us the five minute warning like 20 minutes ago so clearly we like talking to each other and could keep going and i appreciate you giving us a little bit more of your time 
Um, I do want to be respectful because I know you have like several companies to run. So uh, anything else you want to add before we I'm wrap gonna up? Send, I'm going to send you a loom later. Do you get looms? Oh, yes. I love it. Yes. I love loom. Of course. I use them all the time. See? Please send me a loom. I hope you're not. Are you going to offload tasks to me? I don't know if I'm up I to hope the not. I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> but no, I'm glad. I'm Tracy, it was such a such a oh. such a pleasure and an honor, and it's I'm super grateful that our paths have crossed. Shout out to Katie Loeb, and uh, see you at Uncharted. Can't wait.